this episode of Your History, Your Story, our guest is author, inspirational speaker, and passionate animal advocate, Charlie Cifarelli. Welcome to Your History, Your Story. We're so glad to have you as a guest, Charlie. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I just finished your book, 14th and 2nd. It is fantastic. I laughed. I cried. Uh, I was totally inspired. And I have never, and I mean this truly, I've never read a more sincere, heartfelt autobiography. Wow. Thank you. I put it all out there. You really did. And uh, I, I just finished it last night. So this is so fresh in my mind. I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. And I just want you to really tell us your story. I, I want to uh, have our listeners just get a sense of what that book says. And I'm going to start by asking you, tell us about your earliest memories when you were a child, I think in Queens? Queens, Queens, New York. Well, I'm a New York native. I was mm -hmm. born in East Harlem and uh, we went to uh, Queens and my focus came in about 1968 mm -hmm. when I was three years old. And the most uh, idyllic moment was that we went and got a German Shepherd puppy for me mm -hmm. named Ringo. And uh, I, I'll never forget that. Yeah, well, tell us about like the, the, you lived in an apartment. What was that like? We lived in a Astoria, Queens. We lived in an apartment. And apartment living was, um, that's what I knew, James. Mm -hmm. That's what I knew. And everybody knew everybody. And it was pretty cool that everybody knew everybody. Uh, and that, that innocence of my childhood be robbed uh, the following year, 1969, when uh, the kid I played with every day and ran up and down the halls and played at the playground, Kenny, uh, he had his uncle staying with him mm -hmm. and uh, his mother, and uh, he was getting methadone. It was a new program back then, and the uncle was weaning off a of heroin and kept the methadone in the refrigerator to convey it to himself each day. Well, my mother had really been real on top of me with drinking or eating anything out of her sight. One right. time I had lied, I had dr drank some Kool-Aid, and I said to her at a neighbor's apartment that I hadn't anything to drink, and she saw the red around my lips, and I got caught in a lie, and that was the first lie, and I got the back in front of her hand, both ways. So this day, when Kenny would drink this juice, he would go take a nap, tired, and he'd never wake up, he'd die. So he was, I believe, the first reported death of methadone use in New York City in 1969. Do you think your mother had some suspicions that that was a danger in that area or? I think that my mother being the way she was and still is controlled everything. She wanted to control the atmosphere and she's very, very still to this day looks over everything that she's going to eat. Mm. She, I think that she just had enough savvy and street smarts. You know, my mother lost both her parents by the time she was six and eight years old and grew mm -hmm. up in a bunch of foster homes in Queens. And it couldn't have been good during the 40s. So it made her a pretty tough lady. I can only imagine what would have happened if your mother, say that your mother wasn't that way and you went into that apartment and you took a swig of that orange juice as well. I wouldn't be here today. No, no, you wouldn't. But at that time, do you have kind of fond memories of those early days and your German Shepherd? I do. I really do have good, fond memories because life was different back then. Uh, people weren't preoccupied. Uh, they made a big deal about kids. Nobody had iPhones or cell phones. And 
my father had this cool 64 Impala, and it was a convertible Impala. And it was just cool to drive around with my parents. And we wound up going up in 1969 to uh, the Woodstock area. area. And they didn't have tickets. They didn't try to get in. But my father wanted to be part of the festivities uh, back then. And it was just pretty cool. And we wound up, as 14th and 2nd has it, has a nice story about a hitchhiker, a real hitchhiker back then that had the pots and pans hanging from himself and the knapsack and the long hair. And he was just living on the road. And when my father asked him, his name was Gary, Gary, uh, where you're from? He goes everywhere. And as a kid, how can you be from everywhere? So, <laughs> so yeah, so already I had some, uh, I had some indelible moments already as a kid. You know, in your book, you touch occasionally on the fact that you like history. You're interested in history. Yes. And I, I couldn't help but think that you touched history that day when you picked up, your father picked up that hitchhiker because Woodstock was a, was a big deal. That was a huge event. And you're, you're just a little kid, but you have that memory. Of I that. do have that memory. I got goosebumps right now thinking about it. <laughs> the energy was so much different. They had no idea that they were really <clears throat> walking into this yeah. huge deal. My father back then thought, well, they'll have another one of these. Because, again, we had me as a kid. We had Ringo the dog was with us. He was in the car. And, you know, the fact is there was a lot of traffic. The weather wasn't good. Um the sun was out, then it was raining, and it was just something in that era that I'll never forget. And uh, it was a turning point for America. The old was meeting the new, right? and there was conflict. Yeah, right. And it was, of course, this was during the Vietnam War. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you were too young probably to realize that was going on. I wasn't because I, I always ask questions. Back then, I'll bring the listeners and viewers back, we would see taglines on Bridges, underpasses, bomb Hanoi. Mm. And I would ask, what does that mean? And I certainly remember, I was old enough to remember when Nixon ended the war. So I did pay attention, um, and I was always a history buff. I mean, it's not many kids when they're three or four years old ask their mother or father who's the president, and at the time Lyndon Johnson was. So I was always intrigued by history, and so was my father. So the TV always was playing the nightly news, or had the war on. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you were showing that early interest in history, that you had that kind of mind that had, you had a good memory, you were inquisitive, you, you know, you recorded things in your head, and I think that helped you with writing this incredible book and remembering so many details and how you felt. It just, it just shines through. So I think um, when you mentioned about history, myself being a, a history buff and being a podcast about your history, your yes. story, uh, I couldn't help but think of how your love of history and recording things has shined through your work. Thank you. And for the readers of the book, I took the time to do mm -hmm. my research. Because as I know, you know, we'll talk about it later, I worked for the Department of Corrections. I know witness testimony isn't as accurate. People believe what they believe in their mind that they saw. And a lot of times that's really not accurate. But in my case, you know, I believe what I saw and with different tools today, with newspapers.com mm -hmm. and with Google and with other older people that I was able to ask questions to, I was really able to pull 50 plus years of living for the reader to <clears throat> really get a feeling that they were there 
on the path to Bethel, New York. Yes. Now, I wanted to move on a little bit. So you, you're, you had that tragedy with your friend that must have impacted you quite a bit. And now your family moves to Long Island. Yes. And things start to change a little bit, don't they? Could you tell us about that, Charlie? You know, change is not always for the better. <laughs> and we moved from Long Island, which we moved from Astoria, Queens to Long Island. And my parents had what I believe was a good relationship. Mm -hmm. um, it was simple. They were each other's best friends. And now we have a home. Now all this remodeling is going on. And we were at heart really city people. I mean, you know, Westbury, New York in the 1969 was really quiet. Mm -hmm. We were used to our dog, Ringo. He didn't even want to get out of the car. And he used to always look at my father's Impala like, can we get out of here? But my father went on a, on a spree to remodel this home. And um, it was the beginning to the end of them, their happiest times. As I talk about in the book, they were the happiest living in an apartment. And they became the saddest trying to capture the American dream of home ownership mm -hmm. and suburbia Long Island life. Yeah, it's like they're keeping up with the Joneses or surpassing yes. the Joneses. Um, did you, as a child, did you started picking up on that pretty quickly? How did it sort of manifest itself, this change to you? They were restless with each other. And as a child that took everything in, I took it in and I just saw a difference. I saw my mother wasn't happy anymore. Mm. And I saw that my father had become much more, at the, at the least, direct and volatile. And they just did not know what to do with each other. And this Long Island was just this big scape of places to go and restaurants. And unfortunately, drinking was part of their story. And mm. I didn't see this at all in Queens, but they started drinking a lot and started going to neighbors and causing volatile fights. And my father was, was a wild man. And I won't learn about this guy too much later in my life, but of what his real background was. But it was sad to see that, and uh, it was sad to see him bust up the house, and uh, it was it was pretty tough to see that as a kid. You felt fear. Oh my goodness, fear, terror, and all I wanted to do, James, is just have some peace, and that's a bad place for a kid to be, you know. Just want to hang out with my dog and have some peace. Fourteenth and second will bring the reader to reflect on their own life. And either come out of it with a lot of joy that they didn't have a background like this mm -hmm. or relate and say, you know what? I wasn't the only person that had this kind of background. Uh, mm -hmm. There are others out there that have had this. Yeah, and you, you mentioned uh, during that time that your dog Ringo yes. provided companionship to you at that time. Yes, and he was named after the Beatles. I mean, I mean, he was named after the Beatles and... You know, it's really sad thinking back. I could get emotional because my parents had good energy between them. Mm -hmm. And they had the right, what it took. I mean, they were kids that my father was born in the early 30s and my mother was born in 1940. And uh, they were cool for being parents. They had the ability to not be passed like the generation before them mm -hmm. and modernized, but still have sensible ways of looking at things. And that all got thrown out when we moved to Long Island. And I think that, as many stories will have it, King Alcohol became 
part of the relationship. So you were you were feeling not safe, really. No doubt, no doubt, not safe. And as you know, we wound up with the pool incident. I think that's a big part of the book. The pool incident was a big turning point, and uh, I think at that point, I even you even wrote that your that Ringo even changed after that moment because uh, he was afraid. Could you tell us a little bit about the pool incident? Well, the pool incident was this. My father um, was getting friendlier at work with his coworkers than mm -hmm. with my mother. Uh, she was not his best friend anymore. And he wanted to have his coworkers come over and drink and have a pool. So he suggested that I tell my mother I want a pool. You wanted a pool. I wanted a pool. <laughs> Put it on me. And he told me to keep nagging her until eventually she said, hey, let's get a pool for the kids. Right. But I didn't want to go in the pool. And my father, to put this pool in the backyard, had to take down a two-car garage, had to cut a huge tree. There was a lot of work to put the pool in. So then once the pool was in, my father was running around the house getting ready to have his first party, and my mother nixed it. And she said, no, that's his pool. Mm. So that created tension. And uh, what happened ultimately was this. Uh, I didn't go in the pool. Number one, it never the pool never warmed up. I don't know why, but it just never got warm, okay? The sun was not that strong there. And two, nobody really asked me if I wanted to go in the water by myself, okay? So my father, it was an eyesore, the pool, because he couldn't use it with his friends. Mm -hmm. And on a Saturday, he asked me, probably about a month after the pool, have you been in this pool at all? Nope. I mean, I put this pool up, and it looked like electricity was hooked up to him. He got so angry. Mm -hmm. And back in the 70s, he had an edger, which was just a blade with a handle that used to chop the grass next to the curb. He took that and ran around the pool and kept on chopping the line up until the water started trickling out. Then all of a sudden, it created a gusher. And all, whatever it was, 15,000 gallons, was the biggest harrow pool that they had back then, came busting out. Now, to see this as a kid it was insane. Ringo, we didn't have a fence in yet. He was tethered, which you <clears> couldn't <throat> do today illegally, to a cinder block yeah. with a 20-foot rope chain. And uh, all this water came out, gushed him down the driveway, blew out the basement window of the home, filled up the basement with water. My mother was down here washing clothes. The whole neighborhood, all this water came out one time. And But my father was such a crazy man that as soon as it was all over with, he acted like it was a tornado that came out of nowhere mm -hmm. and started cleaning up. But he had done so much damage in the backyard. All the bricks that were laid all got uprooted. There was ruts all over. And then that particular night, we were at the movies, at the historic Westbury Movie Theater. If anybody remembers Westbury, they have that uh, movie theater on Post Avenue. And we're watching What's Up, Doc, uh, uh, the movie of the day. And uh, he was laughing like nothing had happened. So that was the end mm -hmm. of my innocence of seeing life kind of unfold. Although Kenny was pretty tough ODing on methadone, <clears throat> Ringo the dog was never the same. Yeah, he was frightened. He didn't know Very what frightened. to expect anymore. And that, he was your friend. Ringo was your friend. It was my friend. We did everything together. Clubhouses, you name it, we did it. Yeah. So let's let's move on beyond that now. So it's become volatile. It's become uncomfortable for you, and you're not feeling safe. And, and there's a time where you start being put out of the house, actually. Yes. Um, as, as a pretty young kid. Can you tell us about that? I'm eight years old. It's 1973. Hmm. My mother, who was a strong woman in my life, started to collapse to my father's authority. Mm. So they were fighting. So for whatever reason, she said I needed to go. She put my denim jacket on me. It's 1973. I'm eight years old. Mm. Get out. 
Okay, get out of the house. I don't know where to go. I got no money, no food. I just start walking. Eventually, it was a few miles away. I walked to Roosevelt Field. And for people that don't know Roosevelt Field, it has significance. It's where Charles Lindbergh took off. It's where Mitchell Field was. That's right. So I walked to the Roosevelt Field, which is a huge mall. And, um, you know, I get there probably 6 o'clock at night. And they start closing up shop by 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And I really got no place to go. And I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. And back then, nobody, here's what's the crazy part about it. Nobody had iPhones. Nobody was preoccupied back then. But nobody asked where a little eight-year-old boy's parents were. Yeah. I walked to Roosevelt Field, the mall, and I walked home. So I leave the mall when they start closing. I go to a railroad station. Kids are playing on a skateboard. They're hanging out. And um, they kind of know something's up. They're older. They're probably 12 or 13. I, I tell them I'm waiting for somebody. They eventually have to leave. And I go home around past midnight, mm-hmm. and the Nassau County police are there. And that's my first interaction with the police. And I learned from an early age, man, these guys can be your friend. They can help you. Yeah. And that was my first interaction. So I was out at eight years old and, again, at 12 and 13. So it became pretty regular with my parents' volatility that I was the first to go. So, and so you never really knew when they were going to become volatile. Only the, you knew that they would. And you knew that also meant that you would be put out and you'd have to kind of find your own way. Yes. Oh, Charlie, what a, what a difficult thing for, for an eight-year-old to get their, their head around. It's tough. And here's the thing. Hmm. Most kids are developing. I was always in survival mode. It's hmm. really crazy the way my thinking created from that point forward. If I went for a bicycle ride, I put some candy in my pocket. I always started scurrying and thinking about food or just hiding food. I already at a young age knew that I needed resources. You shouldn't have to think about that as a kid. I don't think so. No, no. no. But that's the way it was. It was conditioning you, right? To, to I have to survive. So if, if I get to the door and it's locked, I got some candy bars in my pocket. Yes, pocket. yes. And I'm going to eat whatever I can eat so that I can survive. Well, so... Moving along, things continued. I, I guess with with your parents in the book, you talk about it got it got really rough and very difficult. And you, as you got older, you started to experience even some more some more homelessness for short terms, right? Yes. And then there started to become some temptations with regard to drugs. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, not only was I getting thrown out. James, but I was also getting physically beaten like a man by my mm-hmm. father. Mm-hmm. So I had all this stuff going on. And uh, before long, I wound up, you know, meeting the worst thing I could meet, which was drugs. Mm-hmm. And for those that, you know, for those that are addicts and they have a predisposition to that, <clears throat> okay, picking up marijuana was might as well have been an opening mm-hmm. line, okay? Uh, people that don't overeat don't need a, a, a 12-step program for their food. Okay, they don't have to go to a 12-step program. And people that don't have a drug problem may be able to do these things. Mm. I couldn't. So, because what it did for me, I equated relief to pain. Mm. There was a lot of physical pain, emotional pain. So I messed with drugs, and ultimately it brought me to the streets. 
Yeah, I think it, you had mentioned you stayed with a with a cousin for a while. Yes. And that's when you started to get um, involved a little. Yes, my cousin, who were older, these guys loved drugs. Mm. I mean, they there wasn't a drug they didn't like. Yeah. And um, at 10 years old, I sniffed a line of cocaine. Oh, boy. And my older cousin, who was an athlete, who was well-known, um, who had a drug problem, but not to the level of his younger brother at that time, mm -hmm. yet he flipped out. So luckily that did not become part of my upbringing from 10 years old. But by the time I was 17, 18, I wound up working in the nightclubs and I wound up really learning how to drink with two hands. Mm. And I never drank like a gentleman, okay? So I had the propensity to overeat and overdrink. So I worked at the nightclubs in Long Island, Malibu, and uh, it was a huge nightclub. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the devil always put you in the right position. Mm -hmm. So of all the places to work at a nightclub, my job was working by the main bar by the men's bathroom. So I was right there yeah. to either take the drugs off the guys that were looking to sniff cocaine in the yep. bathroom yep. and throw them out or grab the drinks from the, from, the, from the bartenders, which they had no problem giving drinks. So it was a it was a, it was a tumultuous situation. Yeah. So even what was earning you money was also yes. putting you in a position of temptation and feeding and addiction. You know, and things have come a long way in this country. Okay. Today, if someone says I have a problem with alcohol or drugs, people clap if they're willing to get help. Mm. You actually celebrate it. Mm. In the eighties, it was not like that because remember, in the eighties, you had a lot of old timers. Okay. And there were people that were a lot of World War II veterans that yes. would look at you like you were weak. Are you kidding me, kid? I had to worry about living, surviving, and you you got so much extra time in your hands, you could be drinking and dry. It was not, recovery really wasn't part of the theme back then. And no one would think of it as a, as a disease. I mean, you would never get somebody in the 80s or the 70s or from that period to say, what's wrong with you, kid? You're jerky. They, they just didn't want to say it, nor would you, the more important part is you wouldn't talk about it and you would hide rather than come clean. Hide it. So how would you ever have anybody offering you a solution or encouraging you to get help when you're not talking about it? No, no. Oh. And, and that is the issue. But James, part of what kept me going and part of what always has been an interest is I've always taken interest in people. Yes. I always found that people are basically walking libraries. And everybody's a couple of handshakes away from somebody that really did something incredible or they themselves did something incredible. So as a young kid, when kids were probably thinking about chasing girls or getting their first this or that, uh, bicycles, mini bikes, I was talking to these old guys, these World War II veterans, who I thought were ancient that were in the 60s. <laughs> and then, you know, being told stuff like, well, my father-in-law, you got to give him room. He's shell-shocked from the mm. war. They don't use that term no more. And that's, of course, who I want to talk to, the World War I veterans. So that would be different where I was already a little quirky, where I wanted to know the history of stuff, and I was taken back by landscape, and I was taken back by how old this building is. And, and that was an interest of mine, which, which basically you know, kept me interested in something that was healthy. Yes, and I, to back up a drop, when you were going through the turmoil at home you had a couple neighbors uh who kind of 
poured into you a little bit. Cause yes. old, a couple of older guys who yes. kind of gave you some of uh, some of their wisdom, I guess. And you, you, you remembered a lot about them. In, I listened in your book. to every word. Yeah. Because men, these neighbors felt like they could talk to me. Yeah. One in the book, Mr. Carmichael, I talk about. He was a sergeant in the United States Army during World War II. And he was a bayonet instructor. Mm. And he opened up with me. And he told me that he had bayonet guys and how hard it is to pull a bayonet back out. And he told me stuff about the war that was heavy. Yeah. And, you know, everybody thinks they have it the worst. His, fa his father-in-law was a World War I veteran that I talked about. Mm -hmm. But then also there was another neighbor who was a Vietnam veteran. His name was Andy. And he was really messed up in Vietnam. And I used to go over and talk to him for hours. And then eventually, he had so many guns that he had brought home, and he had rifles. He just snapped one day, and he took a hunting rifle, and he pointed it at me. He says, I could end this right now. I never went back. I never went back. And Mr. Carmichael knew. He knew that the guy was off. He had the thousand-yard stare. And there's a young kid. I could tell you firsthand because we're impressionable. I remember Vietnam veterans going off to war and coming back a year plus later, and they look different. Mm. Now, aesthetically, they grew their hair out when they came home and they wore different clothes. They didn't look squared away like they did in the 60s with a crew cut, but they were different. There's something that happened, and I picked up on that. And I think that if I could say is they didn't have the support of the American people back then when they came home. That's true. And I picked up on that. And this guy, Andy, used to talk about it. So I stopped visiting with him. Mr. Carmichael thought that was a very good move on my end. And, of course, there was Mr. Berg, who was the local pharmacist, who was a big part of my life and told me about getting in shape physically and then lost his son, who was a surgeon, to suicide. And if that wasn't bad enough, a few years later, he lost his only daughter to suicide. He was a broken man after that. Yeah, that was, I mean, that, that was heartbreaking because I know how important he was to you and he was just, he was just very sad and um, I know how much you, you felt he was pouring into you and he was somebody who seemed to care about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm as, as unfortunate as I was with a father, I wound up with the community being good to me and yeah. these are indelible moments that I had with men that uh, all good yeah, All good stuff. So there's some there's a, some people pouring into you. You've got your your dog Ringo. Yes. Uh, I know you lost your Ringo had to be put to sleep. Yes. And you talk about that in the book, um, which must have been very difficult for you. Uh, but then, so let's talk about now. So you started to you were working in a club. You had access to alcohol. Um, you had started to experiment with drugs. Tell us what what happened at. at you reached a point where things got really bad, your physical health and all that, and then you, you started to find out that you, you needed help. When was that? How, well, how did that work out? What happened, James, was this. I wound up getting really bad. I wound up visiting the worst part. It was, it was a death zone for anybody. Uh, East New York, Brooklyn, which is where the 7-5 documentary takes place. Mm -hmm. It would be dangerous for the police. I mean, it was the most de deadliest precinct in the country. And I wound up going there and doing drugs. And I wound up how it all connected. The devil lines you up every time. 
I wound yeah. up, I had an old van, an old truck and a van. I wound up getting a soda delivery route to these neighborhoods of this very cheaply made soda that must have got taken off the market. It was called Jamaican Natural. And it was like dye glow, different colors, red, orange. I mean, this stuff was just pure sugar, colored water. I lived on the stuff when I had no money. <laughs> I mean, it packed weight on you no matter what you're going through. And I wound up in these neighborhoods, you know, hooked on drugs, delivering soda. And, you know, as the story goes on 14th and 2nd, I saw a culture that I had no idea. Now, here's the most important thing that I came out of that. Politicians, lawmen, society, right off these neighborhoods. But there were a lot of good people in these neighborhoods. And that's the part people have to know. Neighborhoods change, but there's a lot of family history in these neighborhoods. And I got to tell you, in those neighborhoods, I got shown a lot of kindness because people knew that I was suffering. And um, I survived those neighborhoods, believe it or not. I mean, definitely God had to step in a lot of times. But I eventually have an awakening, and I will never do drugs again, which is, to this day, you know, a blessing. Yeah, I know there was a point in which you were you were in really bad shape, and I know your your dad came to, you're in an apartment, you're about to be tossed out, yeah. and he came to visit. Can you tell us about that? Through all this, I wound up adopting a dog, okay? And back in the 80s, we didn't, we weren't into breedism, okay? In the 80s, a dog was a dog, okay? <laughs> we didn't say that this dog is a French bulldog that's worth, we, we just, it was a dog, okay? So I wound up adopting from this inner city uh, a pit bull. I look like a lion, beautiful dog. And adopting, I say, but I gave the guy 70 bucks for the dog. And he became my companion. And it was me and him. Now, my mother being the dog lover and my father being a dog lover, it's easier for them to transfer their feelings to the dog. They knew I had hit bottom. And they knew I was in this apartment. And I probably wasn't doing well. I was going to get evicted. There was no more electricity. I was down to no food. And my father came knocking on the door. I thought the police were there the way the knocking was going. So I opened the door, and he was in my face like it was 1970 again. He was going to whip my ass. And uh, he was a volatile guy. I, I can't express this. Look, never mistake size with strength or strength with size. I mean, he was a guy about 5'9", built like one of these MMA fighters. And the guy could fight. And I knew the next thing was going to happen. If I didn't get out of his sight, he's going to throw blows at me. So I ran across this four-lane road, 35 to 40 mile an hour speed limit. And the dog, my dog got hit by two cars. And I thought the dog died, but the dog did not die. And um, ultimately, my parents did provide the medical care and give him a home. And then I eventually wind up in a monastery of all places to get clean. Uh, from drugs and alcohol, and my old life goes away and my new life starts. Yeah, that's a, there's, there's some transformation points throughout your book where you see where you're, there's big changes happen from maybe a small incident. And tell us the story about when, what actually caused you to go to this monastery, because you had had some experience with rehab. Yes. Um, after the incident with your with your dog getting hit by the car and you were sort of rock bottom, you started to go to some rehab. Prior to that, prior to that, I went to rehabs. Oh, it was prior to that. Yeah. Okay, but you you didn't 
do too well at those rehabs. No, I went to rehabs, and um, listen, rehabs are meant for the masses, okay? And they can get a lot of people in, and some of it sticks. I had too much trauma. Mm -hmm. What they were talking about, I couldn't feel or see or touch. And I went to a lot of rehabs, and they didn't work. And ultimately, James, one time when I relapsed on some heavy-duty painkillers, I was found in Queens nearly dead. And a cab driver and some others picked me up and put me in the cab and brought mm. me in, threw me on the hospital, brought me into the hospital, literally threw me into the hospital emergency room. Okay, and it saved my life. But when I came to, I was on a respirator. Oh boy. Okay. Well, I didn't come to. I was on a respirator, and they took me off the respirator. And it was so bad that I didn't even recognize my parents. I had doctor had to tell me who my parents. It's weird. This is really crazy. They ask you a bunch of questions. What's your name? I knew my name. I knew all these dates, but I didn't recognize my parents. Mm. I I asked, who are these people? So my father had it. You couldn't believe. You thought I was faking it. Yeah. I kept asking the doctor, who are these people? They're your parents. So my father shooed my mother away, and it was just him. So my father was no dummy. So what he did was told me about something that just came out. He goes, Charles. A filmmaker, Ken Burns, made a documentary about the Civil War with Shelby Foote. And these are names I didn't know yet. The public would all know these names mm-hmm. in time. And it's a, about a, a, an eight to ten part series, whatever it was. And he, and he interested me in that. And I talked to him. It was almost like I had Alzheimer's where I did not recognize or know who these people are. And slowly it came back to me. Uh-huh. It's amazing that I had blocked them out of my whole psyche where I you know, didn't know who they were. So he he connected with you over the Ken Burns Civil War yeah, thing because he yeah. knew you loved history. And... He knew I loved history. And who, listen, I love history. I mean, who could say the things that Shelby Foote said about the old hair when 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 the soldiers came up and there was a rabbit, you know, and he told the the old hair to run, you know. I mean, the guy had that voice. He was able to even if you didn't like history, draw you in. Mm-hmm. And the two of them were unbelievable. And I always like to say that my story of life is like Elijah Hunt, the brothers, that were every place and every battle, because I feel like I've been every place. You really were. And But then you, you went to a monastery. Now, I went tell to a us monastery. that story, because all of a sudden there's something different here. But how did you come to go to Graymore, it's Graymore, called, right? Graymore, upstate New York. What happened was... And, after my dog got hit by a car, I still believed I could use drugs. I was going to use drugs, and I wound up going to East New York. And on this particular night, I was going to have a spiritual awakening. And that's, you know, for those that don't know what that is, on a different version would be if you listen to um, a motivational speaker, mm-hmm. Tony Robbins, and I'm not your guru. He tries to snap people out by using a curse word to make you go, well, that wasn't what happened to me. I had an uplifting spiritual awakening. I was going to run into somebody on a train platform on my way to East New York on this particular night. And this guy was going to tell me his life story in three minutes. And it was something that's never happened before or after. He walked over to me. His name was Michael. I'll never forget the guy. And he looked at me and he told me that he was a former drug addict that's in recovery now that had beaten addiction one day at a time. They used to live in the Bronx in a refrigerator box. That's how bad it got for him. And I asked him, do you usually tell us to people? He says, you don't look well. Mm. I said, 
He says, your, your eyes are telling the story. And he told me that there's help up at State New York and Graymore. Now, for a lot of people, that would have been enough for them to say, this is no coincidence, man. <laughs> this, yeah, this yeah. Is but I put it, he asked me, are you going to remember? I said, I have a memory like an elephant. So I pushed the envelope, and I did take another train, the subway, to East New York that night. And I was going to cross a line that night that would have killed me. Uh, there were some guys with a 50-gallon barrel behind an abandoned building. In the 80s, most of the buildings were abandoned in this particular area. And they had a fire going. They were shooting up drugs. And I wanted to join them. And uh, I had not crossed that line yet, but it was coming. And one thing about drug addiction, uh, you can't will become a yes. Mm. And the chanting gun in my head, ask him if you could join him. Ask these guys if you could join him. Ask him if you could join him. And I said, where is this coming from? And I literally felt a pushing sensation on me. And again, for the listeners, the watchers, I am a guy that doesn't get caught up in conspiracy. I'm a guy that's got to believe what he sees. Mm. I, I generally don't believe stuff unless I've experienced it or can really read thoroughly about it. But there was pushing on me that was not me. There was forward motion that I didn't want to do. So I said, there's another dimension to this life. And I don't care what anybody says. Something bad. There is something you. bad that's pushing me towards these men. And all I could think about is to call out for God. Because I had just talked to that Michael not that long ago, maybe an hour and a half ago. And I started to just say, God, God, help me. God, help me. God, help me. And it was like almost slowing my path down. And I came to the point where, I, God, help me. And these guys all turned around and looked at me horrified. What's going on? And I ran away from them. And I ran and ran and ran until I wound up going to a fire station. This was at least 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I spooked a fireman who was working on the truck of whatever he's doing. And um, I said, I need water. And I washed my face. He gave me water. And I still look like a healthy guy. I was a young guy in my 20s. And he settled me down. He goes, but what are you doing in that neighborhood? I said, I don't know. Hmm. He said, well, the FDNY is hiring. Maybe that would give you direction. I said, sir, I would be no good to the department. I got to get to this place called Graymore. I got to save my life. I can't save anybody else's life. And as things would have it, I waited till about 6 o'clock in the morning. I called my father. And as tough and as mean as he was, I told him I needed to save my life. I needed to go to Graymore. And he was willing to give me a ride to Graymore. And it was the most, I waited at the Jamaica train station all day for him. And I don't want to get into it, take too much time, but there's some stories about what happened at the Jamaica train station that will have a reader laughing. If you think Three Stooges can entertain you, this, this story of the chicken place will entertain you even more. But what happened was this. My father picked me up from that train station and two guys that could never get along, would never spend as much time again together, would be in his car driving up to Graymore on a rainy Friday night. And there was music that he would not play. My father was a Pavarotti guy. He was a Frank Sinatra guy. He had Hootie and the Blowfish, but more importantly, he had Aaron Neville. And for anybody that's ever suffered in this life, if you've ever suffered and you listen to Aaron Neville, oof, he sings songs from the heart. And I listened to those songs while we were going there. I started to cry inside and got some tears. Mm. And my father dropped me off at Graymore. And I would never touch a drug again. My life would be different. I would be de-loused. They don't do that anymore. I would be de-loused 
and have to go to this monastery and spend a long time there before I could even go to rehab. That's how far off the peg I had gotten. Just briefly, because I, I just love the way, the, the, the way that you captured your time at Graymore. Uh, it just, it, it moved me because you were really serious about following <laughs> what they were doing. Like you were, you, you were like, I'm, I'm sticking to this. And you started to see that what they, what they said was, was good. My experience is a good one. I mean, I got saved by the Franciscan monks. They saved my life, man. And the crazy part about addiction was this. After two weeks there with them of steady meals, some prayer, I wanted to go home. And Father Bernie and Father Owen, two no-nonsense guys, they said to me, Charlie, you don't have a home. Mm -hmm. I started to cry. Your father says you're homeless. You lost your apartment. You have nothing. We're providing a home for you. It was really a big turning point in my life. And then they gave me a job working at the cemetery. And I had a solitude job of doing landscaping at the cemetery. And this was the biggest awakening I think I've ever had in my life. As my fogginess from the drugs continued to be lifted, and it's a long process. It doesn't happen overnight. I started to look at every date of birth and date of death and started to realize I was probably 25 at the time and realized I wasn't going to live a long life. Mm -hmm. I think the shortest life I saw was in the late 60s, 68 or 69. I said to myself, the way I'm going, I won't make 30. The way I'm going, I got this whole life that's waiting for me. And the only thing between me and my life is continued abstinence from drugs. See, what happens to someone that's been abused is we wind up abusing ourselves. Someone that has not been cared for by others does not care for themselves. Because let's put it this way. If you knew how to care for yourself, if I could go back today in time, I would have, I would have, called, I would have called 911 and, and made a report. I mean, I would have known how to care for myself. I didn't know how to care for myself. So what happens is when the abuse is done, now you wind up abusing yourself. And, you know, you don't make great choices in food either. I mean, you're not looking to eat. Uh, broccoli and carrots. I mean, you want sugar and you want all the things that aren't good for you. So ultimately, uh, Graymore and there had given me an awakening that I still carry with me today. Yes. And I know when they were transitioning you to sort of halfway house and things like that, uh, they got you a job, set up in a job. Uh, I think it was in a department store. Or yep, something. JC I had to, so I had to laugh a little bit. I mean, you're a big guy. Yes. And you tell us about hanging little like baby clothes on hanger at, at the uh, department yeah, store, yeah, and yeah, and they didn't want you to make too much money. No, yet. So no, they knew they knew they knew how to get back in the business of living. They knew I couldn't be overwhelmed with a job. And at the time, I got back. I mean, back in the '80s, I looked like a, a young Joe Klecko. I mean, I had a 20-inch neck, and here I am at 235, hanging little dresses on hangers. In J.C. Penney's. Yeah. But it was really a great time in my life. And it was a time that I was so focused on healing that my life got better by the day. You know, you I think you even say in the book that you took your job very seriously. I did, James. I am capable of doing that. I'm an all-nothing guy. Now, you leave the uh, halfway house. You, you go into back into society. 
but you kind of make a mistake as far as the one of the things that they told you not to do that you did was a relationship was to get into a relationship while you're still going through the recovery process um and that took you out to nebraska <laughs> it took me to nebraska so it was bittersweet yeah. i got involved in a relationship which i had no business being involved mm. in and um but the woman had family in nebraska and it was really for me what was needed um a new now geographical change does not help people generally mm. but if you have a program and a geographical change a lot of great things could happen now i went out to nebraska and i was small-minded i only thought of nebraska as farming and didn't think of the insurance companies, Berkshire Hathaway. But then I started waking up of all the financial institutions there. Mm -hmm. So then I said, well, maybe farming, maybe I'll get a series six and seven test. This was not going to be my future for employment. I get there, and who hires me is the Department of Corrections. That is incredible. And how long did you end up at the Department of Corrections? So I, I went to halfway point for about a decade, and that was enough for me. A decade. So now you're you're out in Nebraska. Yeah. You've got a a job, a, a, a good, it's a good job. It is a good state job. Good state job. All the benefits. Job. Yeah. Where were you at in your both in your recovery and your emotions at that time? Well, unfortunately, at that point, you know, you can't be a touchy-feely emotional guy in corrections. Mm -hmm. So I'm starting to, as I'm was starting to unpack all this stuff, now I gotta pack it up. Now I'm working in corrections with some dangerous fellas. And, you know, I'll get to work three institutions in Nebraska and work a youth facility. There's maximum also, but I started off at the penitentiary. I don't know how you go from my life to the life I had. But next thing I know, I'm, 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 Nebraska's an interesting state, and I find it to be very modern in a lot of ways, James. It's not the East Coast. It's not the West Coast. It's not North. It's not South. It's Central. Right. And they've learned a lot. And the infrastructure is all new. And they feed the world. They do feed the world. But Nebraskans are very sensible people. <laughs> They're like, you know, you guys from New York and New Jersey, you throw all your rocks out of your pocket. In case you need a rock one day, you don't have it. So what they mean by that is we get in these blowout fights with people <laughs> and we don't leave <laughs> nothing on the table. I mean, and they always believe that God gives you a second chance by giving you tomorrow. You know, there's always mm. tomorrow. There's tomorrow. <laughs> Don't have to finish the fight today. So here I am working in Nebraska, and I'm working, and they decide that their death row inmates don't have to have glass between their visits, that they have real visits, mm. and my job is the visiting room. So I'm here in these dramatic visits with these inmates that are facing an electric chair. So it was an eye-opener for me. You know, and here's addiction. Addiction told me, boy, you weren't as bad as these guys. You know, mm. you, you Maybe, maybe you had some more drinking and drug. No, 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 no. Eventually, I'll move up, and eventually I'll have all the keys to the prison system at the penitentiary. James, one of the important things that, to note here is I had been sober and clean off of drugs for a number of years already by the time all this occurs. In 1998, for a brief while, working in the Department of Corrections, I thought I could drink again. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay. Drugs you can't do. It's illegal. I can't do them. I can't work for the Department of Corrections. Like, I can safeguard myself. You know, if I drink, I won't drug. But I picked up alcohol at a street dance. And I want to tell you something about Nebraska that's different. The people out there live. They're not in survival mode. I mean, they're not worried that they're going to eat tonight. There's just, the, I mean, I found guys that were playing chess after work. 
I found guys golfing. I mean, these guys out there approach life differently. I yeah. mean, they don't choke up on the fork and knives when they eat. I mean, they, they, they notice that. They go, are you worried there's going to be a food shortage? Easy, buddy. Just back up a little bit. <laughs> so they are, they, and that's some of the humor, that 14th and 2nd. <laughs> Definitely. So they, they kind of like said, easy, you know, we're going to be, everything's going to be okay. And that's, they let me knock myself out. But I went to a street dance. It was a short, brief deal. I quickly realized I couldn't drink either because the brain doesn't know what it's being anesthetized by. It wouldn't know alcohol, dope, pills. It knows the guards down. So I quickly got very serious in my program and continued my sobriety and been sober ever since. Now, I really learned how to live in the Midwest. I really learned how to live. And some of the things you learn about is personal accountability. You see, in Nebraska, you don't curse somebody out or give somebody the finger that might have cut you off because they'll think we don't know if that guy got bad news today we don't know if somebody's sick mm. and you'll see him in town at some point even though lincoln's got three hundred thousand people you'll run into him mm -hmm. so i quickly realized to conduct myself like a gentleman and it worked and my favorite movie uh this history buff has a favorite movie uh although i want to say gone with the wind although there's other movies it's, it's a wonderful life. Oh, yes. Because what Jimmy Stewart taught me in that movie was happiness is not St. Elsewhere. Like he had St. Mm. Elsewhere. It wasn't traveling the world. It wasn't Sam Wainwright and all his fancy stuff. It was being home at his home with his family. So that's what I learned out there. And that is really important uh, message I got. And then, of course, the... Uh, Comparison is the thief of joy. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, you also at this time, I, I know things didn't end up going well in your relationship, and um, uh, you. But but at the time, you you were you bought a new house and you were refurbishing it, and you were carting off refuse from it, and all of a sudden, this business <laughs> appears. Yes, for Charlie, it does, uh, and a, a very prosperous business. Right? It Can does. you tell us real quick about that? You know, I bought an old house. Yep. And did the remodeling. Started hauling stuff to the trash, to the landfill. Neighbors wanted it. I realized that there was a need for this, and I put an ad in the local, like Penny Saver. They have something called a thrifty nickel, and it took off. And the Nebraskans were only too happy to help me. I got to tell you something. When you want help out there and you're earnest about it, my goodness, I had more trash to haul from morning, noon, and night. And there were people that did this for 100 years in the family, but somehow they allowed me to get a waste tools permit, and it changed my life. It did, and financially, and you, but you also, uh, you, you ended up uh, doing so well, uh, you eventually left the Department of Corrections. Yes, I did. Uh, you, tell, you talk about why in the book, some other, you know, some national events as yes. well that, that made that happen. But you started doing this full time. So now Charlie's, you know, you're, you're, you've given up the drinking. You've been off of drugs for a long time. Long time. Uh, you're making good money. Uh, you've got some nice people around you in Nebraska. Where, where were you, though, spiritually, emotionally? Where well, here's you? the problem. Uh, James, I couldn't tell the fellow Nebraskans what I had been through. I certainly couldn't tell anybody at the Department of Corrections yeah. that I got the keys to every lock in their penitentiary that I was a maniac at one point, because you could be a maniac in New York and New Jersey and not wind up with a record. I mean, other parts of the country, I mean, they get your number quicker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could be pretty nuts. I mean, listen, you could be pretty nuts, but 
you know, I wasn't out doing anything yeah. that, that, that was going to give me a Charlie Manson uh, sentence, but I couldn't tell anybody. Yeah. And there's anonymity in 12 step programs. Mm. And, you know, I did have one time when somebody showed up that I knew and I all of a sudden, instead of Charlie, I'm an alcoholic drug user, I'm Charlie Alanon. And that was an example of something mm. that I, because somebody for the Department of Corrections wound up with a DWI and they had to go to meetings. Uh, Charlie, what are you doing? I said, I'm Alanon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. here because of guys like you. Yeah. So I've grown today. I would never have that level of dishonesty. I'd look somebody square in the face and say, look, if you've got diabetes or you have kidney failure, you need, you need dialysis. Same thing with this disease. Yeah. So James, I wind up getting this business and I wind up making money and I wind up getting all the things that I think that this child should get that I think that would make me happy. Mm. But unfortunately it didn't work. Something was still, something was really missing. And, um, God, it's really, you, you can never fix a broken soul with stuff. Mm. Actually it prolongs the misery and money gives you a higher form of isolation. Money's actually more dangerous because when you have money, you don't have to get out in the public as often. You could hide yeah, because you don't need to be out. So what happens is I have a number of good years and I think this is funny. So, the part of me, that little voice in you, that's always talking to all of us, we all have that little voice, tells me, you know, the money is good. But the problem with the money is you've got a lot of accountability, a lot of liability. You need the money without this liability. You need to sell this business. So I sold the business. So I get this money. And now I don't have to go to work. And now I notice I, for about three months, James, I'm so happy. Mm. But eventually, a big fly gets in the house, one of them big Nebraska horse flies that are around the horse barns. I mean, these flies are big, man. You can hear them. They sound like a B-52. Let me tell you, they got big, they got big mice out there, too, in the fields that will come in. <laughs> uh, they, they don't eat the genetically modified corn, but they'll eat your wiring on your garbage truck. Okay? It's the craziest stuff out there. This is fun. Yeah. I mean, these mice are just like, okay. They, okay. So about three months, there's a fly in the house. I am just livid about this fly. I'm miserable, James. Mm. I'm miserable. I spend a few years not working. I try to fix myself. I go to car races. I buy some exotic cars. I do everything I think I'm supposed to make me happy. It's miserable. And I go to start my business again because I had a no-compete for three years. And I took the low-hanging fruit. The company that bought me, that was a very large company, said, look, we'll give you a heck of a compensation package. We'll give you five weeks a year off. We'll give you a money for a company car. We'll do everything you want. Come aboard with us. You're out of your prime now. You wouldn't want to take a chance with another business. And I took the low-hanging fruit and went to work for them. And uh, I did that despite Jen, my, my life partner, saying to me, don't do it. You won't be happy. But this is all going to have come to a head. You see, James, I would have went through this world and I would have known that the real thing that I had to do was fix what was broken inside me. And that was coming. And that's where 14th and 2nd comes into the play. The intersection of 14th and 2nd. Yeah. Comes. And before we talk about that, just you mentioned about uh, your life partner, uh, your soulmate, Jen. Yeah. You met uh, an amazing person in your life. Really. Amazing. She's been so supportive of you in, in so many ways. Uh, so she was there at the right time when... What happened on 14th and 2nd happened. So could you tell us what it was that happened there? 14th and 2nd, I'm sitting on my desk running a trash company where I should be busy with the 6,500 customers, but I always had to know what was going on back east. 
I have to see what's going on in the Daily News, New York Post. On this particular day, on August 13th of 2012, it's going to make the headlines in New York and all over the world, actually, that a pit bull was shot in the head and it's been captured on video. A homeless man was having a seizure. The story is in Star of the Dog Wikipedia for those that want to get the details. Mm -hmm. And I was going to watch this video, which was not an underground video, and I never saw anything like that. It captured a homeless man laying on the street that had a seizure, and his dead dog, which appeared to be dead, laying in the street all bled out. Mm. And I had so much empathy for those two. Mm. You know, I didn't know until a filmmaker, David Hoffman, who did a documentary on this story, told me, he goes, Charlie, you know why? That was you. You felt the empathy. You were that man one time on the street with his dog. And for some reason, James, we talked about this earlier. I don't believe what I can't see. First time in my life I had a leap of faith that was huge. I looked at this story and it appeared that the dog died. All the blood was out of the dog. The dog wasn't moving. I believe the dog lived. But the news was dismal. The headlines, New York papers. Because it was a bizarre scenario. Why this made so much news? Because there was 10 minutes of video of this thing. The mm -hmm. dog people yelling, screaming. It was a, it was a three-ring circus. I called up the city of New York for my trash recycling hotline. And I called up the area of the administration part that runs the city of New York's animal shelters, the New York City Animal Care and Control. And I hit the admin link because I knew to go in like a businessman. And I got a lady, Renee, on the phone. And uh, I didn't lie. I said, Renee, I'm calling you from Midlands Recycling here in the Midwest. I said, I want to talk to you about if you guys are going green in New York. And she was only too happy to tell me they were. Mm. And she, you know, got a kick out of me. I had a New York accent calling a New York place with a Nebraska number. <laughs> and I segued into the dog eventually. And she said, honey, we have a lot of dogs. I said, well, the headlines say the dog's name is Star. It was shot by a New York City police officer. And she, I heard her typing away. She goes, well, what do you want to know? I said, is the dog still alive? She goes, yes, the dog is alive. She goes, it's being cared for at the Fifth Avenue vet. That's one of our partners. I go, why is the headlines? Well, the dog most likely will die. The condition doesn't look good. Public could handle a dog that dies rather than one that's suffering. We tie up our fax lines. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I had the biggest leap of hope. That was incredible. And I called up the Fifth Avenue vet, and I kept on calling Renee, and I rooted for this dog. And I made a big deal about this. And the news didn't want to go back, and they would question the police. And the police said, no, the dog is dead. By the third day, they said, and you can go back to these dates and Google this if you're really interested in all the headlines. Or go star the New York Pitbull Facebook page. I got all of her, the history of this, and I just have all of it there. And you could read the headlines as the days go by. I mean, this captured world news. I mean, not only does it capture New York, People Magazine, New York Magazine, Gothamist, The Post, The Daily News, The East Village Times. I mean, it got everywhere. And you used those, uh, that inborn uh, gift to research and to oh, I use your did. street smarts and your, your business uh, uh, practices to locate this dog and the story's all in 14th and 2nd. It's an incredible, it's an incredible <laughs> story. And I thought to myself, Jen is going to kill him. 
you. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. The, with the work I did to find this dog. Because yeah. to yeah. the listeners and the viewers, they mm-hmm. hid the dog. Because yeah. once a dog lived, they, what do you do with a dog that they said died and lived? <laughs> and now it's a liability. Maybe this dog will bite somebody. They had to rename the dog and stick the dog in another part of the country. I thought about, you know, we're from the New York area. We think of witness protection programs. Yes. <laughs> That's like Star the... Was in yes, literally, program. literally renamed and yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. And of course, while this was going on, and I'm making headlines myself with this, you know, my father's saying, "Look, son, this story is never going to get any traction." He goes, "You got everything wrong here." Yeah, he said it's a pit bull, it's a homeless drug addict, it's a police officer, and it's in the East Village, crappy part of Manhattan. Nobody's ever going. He goes get behind something that people will want to hear, like a Labrador saves a child out of a pond. I said, well, that dog and the kid will have the story because that's a feel-good story. This one is the dog. So he couldn't believe it. But here's the thing that I think the biggest thing was. He said this story will go away. Two years after the story, the biggest news in New York, WPIX, made it one of their top stories of 2014, wow. two years after when it was identified that I became the owner of this dog, the dog father of this dog, this famous dog. The dog father, and uh, you know, it is—it's an amazing story on Fourteenth and Second that you—you you become Star's owner. And let me just ask you this: How did Star then change your life and fill that, start to fill that void that you had still? Star was the most calmest, loving Buddha of energy that I have ever saw. Okay, now. I would bring her around people that were not even dog people that would feel her energy. Mm-hmm. I would take her to Alzheimer's events. College professors would have me speak in their journalism classes with her. The monastery would invite me 25 years later back there with her. Mm-hmm. She was the most well-behaved, poised, intelligent being that I tell you that didn't speak that I could be around. She changed my life because she was okay with having been shot in the head having breedism down her throat, that she changed the persona of her future because no one ever asked me. Now, granted, pit bulls have bad names, and a lot of, a lot of people listening to this today would say, I'd never own a pit bull. That may be true, and that's your prerogative. But this dog had a different energy about her that we would go to restaurants that weren't user-friendly to dogs and be invited in with the dog. And a lot of incredible things happened. So how did she change me? I started to look inside myself for the healing and I started to address and started to be okay and started to be able to get a full night's sleep with having her close by Mm. because she was just pure goodness. And James, I know a lot of people love their dogs and I have six rescue dogs. There's Rin Tin Tin and there's Lassie and of course, stars on Wikipedia with them, this was no regular dog. She had defied death. She had made it out of the New York City Animal Care and Control three times. The first time, having been dropped off there in 2011, just shortly after she was born, as an abused puppy. She then wound up going back again, and a homeless guy lost her or whatever happened, and then again the third time with the New York City police shooting her. Uh, She had defied all odds on living. She had defied all medical doctors looking at her x-rays, MRIs with bullet fragments all over. They could not get the bullet fragment out of her head. Uh, But they migrated away from her brain, and she survived, and she thrived. So amazing. And I I think you even mentioned in the book that uh, she she sort of gave you back your childhood. She certainly did. That you had missed. 
She helped me interact with my fellow human beings. I was mm. awkward, James. She allowed me to be okay with myself because I learned something from Star. You know, someone that has been traumatized could either be withdrawn or overextend themselves. They just don't know how to be mm. and kind of let people sniff the flower and sure. get to know you. Sure. Like you taste coffee. Star allowed me, because I noticed what Star did. She gave everyone a nice welcome. She'd smile and sit down. And that was it. She faded out. She didn't overextend herself. And I started to learn how to do that. And people like that more. People don't like somebody that you're going to pull words out of, nor do they like initially somebody that is over the top. Once you know people, I mean, you could be over the top when you get crazy about something going on, if it's a sports team or something, but you don't do that. And I knew no middle ground. This dog taught me that. So now you've you've got this amazing dog, and um, your life is just changing. Of course, you've got a you know Jen has been so supportive of you, but there was something you you had this this history that you had behind you, this pain that was still inside you, and you you needed that to come out. So, how did Fourteenth and Second the book? Come into yes. play, and what did it do for you? What, how did it help you, James? I got everything in this life I thought it would make me happy, including the house that I always wanted on the hill. Mm. And I moved in a lot of houses, and I pictured this home, and I wound up with the home with no neighbors and a long driveway. Mm. And I got the worst depression after I had left Nebraska and came back east, mm. and I got sad because something was hurting me. There was no more buying sprees. There was no more trash business. I left the trash business after Star mm -hmm. was shot. I rescued Star. And what I wanted to do during the day is watch the History Channel and lay on the couch with my dog next to me. And that's not productive. Mm -hmm. Jenna's productive. And she said to me, I, I can't see you like this. I can't see you like this. All these years of sobriety, all you've been through, and this is what you're going to be as a couch potato? I said, this is my home, too. I'll do what I want to do. I've worked hard. She goes, I don't care how hard you work. You are not the man I know. Mm. I said, you know what? Me and my dog, I'll tell you what. We'll move down the basement. Mm. And she says, do you need help? Because I didn't think, she, I didn't think <laughs> she she'd called, help me. She called your bluff. <laughs> I, and I yeah. called hers. I said, you know what? We like these couches in the living room. She says, I'll help you move them. And Stork couldn't believe it. <laughs> so we moved down the basement. Mm. And this is a space that we are going to be in for the next four months. And Star was like, dude, what did you do? She's looking at me. You know, Star was so rational. She was so, she's looking at me, and she's like, I, I, I like the other part of the house. But what I did, James, is I decided to write this book, 14th and 2nd. I decided to put pen to paper. I was so blinded by my father that I couldn't see that he had jailhouse tattoos on him. Jen noticed it. I couldn't understand what a smooth talker he was. I never really dove into the fact that he had a concrete company in Brooklyn during the heyday of bad guys in the 60s and 70s. I knew he had done some prison time, but I didn't know much. I knew that he had guys that he hung around with in the concrete business that were well-dressed men. Mm -hmm. and, and he even mentioned that some of these guys might be in the mafia. Now, growing up in Merrick, I knew some of these guys. I mean, they don't make separate high schools for these guys. I, I grew up with some of these mobsters' <laughs> sons, the attorneys that represented the Gambino family. Mm -hmm. So 
I took it, that didn't interest me. Because I, I never saw those guys as having good finish lines, you know? So that didn't interest me, but I knew who they were. So I decided to write this book, and I decided to go to newspapers.com and to just put my father's name on it. I was blown away. 1956, he was arrested with Joseph and Briglia, a guy that I was introduced to, supposedly my godfather, mm. a buddy of my father, who had been, in 1956, was a three-time felon, having done time in Rahway, having done time in upstate New York and in Missouri. He was a dangerous guy, big Italian guy. And my father tried to rob a cabaret. And a New York really? City police officer came in, and Briglia put a gun to him and pulled the trigger. And the gun jammed. The gun did not jam. I would have never been born. My father would have went away forever. Would have gone away forever. So these guys go away. And he gets out in 64. And the story starts to make sense. And my father always talked about this guy, Bobby Composio, was a mafia guy. And uh, <clears throat> he meets my mother at this house. And I start to put all these photos. I start to put all this together. I go, this guy, he's been a dangerous guy his whole life. Mm. He's a guy that didn't talk much. He's a guy that was not my right primary caregiver. And my mother was, because of her background and because of the fact that she grew up in the foster homes, when she met my father, she wound up going with him and that he was her safeguard and having a roof over her head and everything else that went through it. And I started to put all the pieces together. Mm. My mother had gone. There was a, a, back in the 1960s, there was a tactical uh, police force. I don't want anybody to get confused with the New York City Tactical Narcotics Task Force, but there was a tactical police force that men had to be over six foot tall. Mm -hmm. And my mother dated a cop that was, she said to me, was dirty, was on the take from the mafia. So how did all these people, now all these stories made sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And then when, when we moved to Long Island, we would go to politicians' homes for fundraisers. And I was able to put all these stories together. Because you were now, you were writing your story. I was writing And you were uncovering, because of the way you think. Yes. You were uncovering all these other pieces that really fed into your life story. They certainly did, and it made the sense of what occurred in my life, and it made sense of what occurred. And it was deep, it was crazy, and I got done with this book. It took me four months to write, which mm -hmm. doesn't seem like a lot of time, but we're talking some days writing for 20 hours. Wow. I initially wrote 160,000, 150,000 words. It was professionally edited down to 102,000 words. Will not leave the reader bored. There's no spots. I believe that you'll be like, oh boy, Never. I'm losing track. So the book is done. I'm a, I'm a new person. I had a rebirth. I go, I move back upstairs. <laughs> That's I, good. Yeah. It's we, a bonus, right? Right. The couches <laughs> stay in the basement and yeah. we're going to get new couches upstairs. So we got new couches <laughs> and everything's good. And I'm rebirth. And I realized how crazy. But Jen was supportive of me. She knew I was on a mission. She knew that she had awoken the giant within me, like Tony Robbins said. She had woken me, and I wrote this book. Now, one of the things that I wanted to do when I got done with the book, I uncovered all this, is I wanted to call my father. Mm. And I was waiting for the right time. I had a, how do you broach this conversation? Yeah. Hey, listen, Dad, we're on the phone right now, but I understand why you acted the way you acted, and I'm going to talk about the best part of my life with you. You brought me up to Raymore. 
but I mm. also want to talk about this dark, dark side of you. You were in trouble as a kid. In Briglia, they're looking, you can Google him. They were looking for him in 1980 for a $100 million synthetic heroin ring. In 1980, and they say, the, the FBI says he's best known for his participation in the French Connection. Mm-hmm. Now, when you have friends like this, <laughs> I don't think you have bedside manner with your kid. And yeah. you know, here's the thing, James. I was not the man my father wanted me to be. Mm. I always thought too much. Always felt too much for him. I always was too much analytical. I always wanted to know the story behind the story. I wasn't okay with a blanket statement. Yeah. And he didn't like it in question. I, he didn't like, I asked him as a young kid by 14th and 2nd, we used to go down to by the Bowery. He used to like antique Tiffany chandeliers and stuff like that. He used to spend his money on. And I saw, he pointed out, you see what happens to you when you wind up on drugs and alcohol? I saw the people on Bowery. Mm-hmm. I, and I asked him as a kid, I said, Dad, that looks so sad. Why aren't, they, why aren't those men crying? He goes, it figures you'd ask something like that. Mm. So 14th and 2nd, always been part of my life. I bought drugs there. My dog would get shot, almost die there, come back to life. Um, I think to crystallize this book, it will be a roadmap for somebody that isn't self-imposed hell with either food, gambling addiction, drug and alcohol, or somebody that knows somebody that is in that predicament, or somebody that is trying to go out and make money because they think that's going to make them happy. Mm. Now, as far as security goes, let me tell you something. There is no security in this world. We get to the point where we act like we have it all together because it's 2022. Listen, it's always been a dangerous world. Before this, we didn't have meteorologists that tell us pinpoint when a tornado was coming down. We didn't know how to handle these wildfires. We didn't know a lot of things. We're learning a ton of stuff that we didn't know. And, you know, back then, I mean, we're all worried today about GMO foods. Well, I mean... My father used to use Claudine, which is outlawed now, around the house like it was a weed killer. I mean, that stuff was prevalent back <laughs> yeah. in the 60s and 70s. Yep, yep. So the world has always been dangerous. So I don't want to hear that, it, you know, it was great yesterday, it's terrible today, or vice versa. Here's what I will say. I think for those that aren't addicted, that don't have a problem like I'm talking about, but are caught up in the financial realm where they got to get ahead, they got to get ahead, yeah. they got to get Well, I did it for you. Now, it's mm-hmm. one thing for a guy that's a trust fund guy to make some good financial investment and become worth a nine-figure guy instead of just a seven. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you take a guy that was on the streets that couldn't feed himself and you put him in a lucrative career that he sells mm-hmm. his trash business? So I would be the best example of somebody who had nothing and then had a lot. And let me tell you, that does not change the way you feel inside because what we all want in this life even down to the death row inmate, is we want familiarity. The death row inmate may act like he wants this fancy meal at the end of his life. He wants something his mother made him. Mm. And at the end of the day, life is life. And we get into these realms where we need these big mausoleum-type homes. Well, that wasn't what I grew up in. Mm. Now, granted, when we moved from Westbury and went to Merrick, I mean, then we're in a nice neighborhood with the right homes and everybody, you know, four houses to the block and everybody's a so-and-so. But generally, I would say, don't put off happiness. Don't put off, it's not in St. Elsewhere, and it's not, you know, here's something else, James. 
the whole thing on all these little Instagram reels, Facebook, right. is all about retirement. Everything's about when you retire. Everything, do you have enough money to retire? Do you have enough money to retire? Retire, retire. My goodness, it takes people away from where they are right now. Yes, the future is replacing <laughs> the present. The future, let the future put a few acorns away. Don't be manic about it. Know that you have a loving God that owes mm. you. And live your life today, not like a drunken sailor. And stop putting off this life to retirement. Why would one even think of that? That doesn't make any sense. Live your life today. Be grateful for what you have. Because what none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Now, we all know that saying. But until you really have faced a few people that have left, you don't know that. Absolutely. And... Charlie, your, your book, 14th and 2nd, has, there are just so many examples of, you know, hardship that you went through and um, trauma that you went through, but also people who reached into your life and animals that reached into your life yes. to show you about, um, you know, that they loved you, that they cared about you. And uh, like you said, Star, Star was just an amazing impact on you and her, her resilience and her love of living in the present. And yes. enjoying the present, And right? she has a children's book written by Jen. And I, I didn't share this, it would be important. The police in Beverly Hills, California, have them in their uh, cruisers, and so some, some of the state police in Rhode Island. And what the book is, it's about I'm a star. Star looked different. She had the injuries, the missing eye. And there's a scene there, early on, where somebody ridicules the look of her. Mm -hmm. uh, other dogs at the dog park. Oh. And our feelings get really, really so hurt. So there's a lesson to be told there, yeah. There's a lesson. So her feelings get really hurt, and she's crying in her one eye. And this is real stuff, man. We had somebody that's supposed to be very understanding mm. that when we first took Star home, they yelled, what happened to your dog? Mm. This is something that really happened, but yeah. it was a human. And, but this is somebody that wants grace given to him on all of his topics. Mm. So we have six other rescue dogs from the Star Projects. Jen and I started, Jen was the uh, founder of this, and I jumped on board the Star Project, which rescues dogs. So we have six other dogs, and they all have stories. And in the book, Star goes home to tell her buddy Petey, Jack Russell, what happened. And all her friends show up at the dog park, and they confront the bullies. And they let them know it's no way to talk to somebody. And then they will go walking away. And that really is a message that even us humans could use. So Star's got, I'm a Star book, and um, it's just great stuff. And unfortunately, Star passed away yeah. February 19th of 2021, and she died as she lived, uh, James. Mm. She died unannounced. Mm. She had been battling cancer and doing really well. Looked the same right to the last day she lived. She took some deep breaths in, and she passed. Mm. And she left us. I know she left a huge imprint on your life. And that must have been a very difficult thing for you and Jen to go through. But she really left something along oh. with you, didn't she? And I can see it. I can see it in you, Charlie, that, um, you know, uh, your life story, what this book says. And, and for, again, you, you mentioned people who might be struggling with addiction, whether it be to work or to to drugs or uh, eating or whatever it is, yes. trying to fill a void. Uh, there's so many instances in your life where 
some good things offset some bad things, but it's a wonderful book. I want to thank you so much for thank being you. a guest on Your History, Your Story. Uh, the book 14th and 2nd is available on Amazon. Amazon, and it's available on charliecifarelli.com. And I never thought I'd say this because some people do not want to get it from Amazon because some they want a personal message in it or something. I'd be more than happy with it. Sometimes people want it to give to a friend or something. So, Well, in a minute, you'll you, be kind enough to sign my copy of thank your you, book. Mom. I would love yeah. that. And again, thank you so much for all the work that you're, you are doing to rescue dogs yes. and motivating people to really uh, you know, live in the present. Live in the present. Take interest in people. Don't find yourself, don't find others interesting, but yourself more interesting. Ah, <laughs> I love that. There's I love some really that. cool people out there. Yes. There's some really cool people, and some of them don't blurt their story out. Get to know them, and you'll say, wow, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you, Charlie. Thank you. And for all our listeners, thank you for listening to Your History, Your Story. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And until next time, have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.